Before we can even discuss how the fentanyl crisis has impacted the Inland Empire, or IE for short, we need to dedicate some time to establish its exact location. Why? Because it's easy to lose track of what the interviewees are talking about throughout this project unless basic knowledge of the IE's borders are established. But pinpointing the Inland Empire's borders comes with its own problems. The area's boundaries have been a hotly debated topic for almost a century and it feels like there will never be a clear definition. A quick Google search displays Wikipedia's definition, a metropolitan area and region in Southern California, inland of and adjacent to coastal California, centering around the cities of San Bernardino and Riverside. It's a good start to describing the region, but if you have never heard of the names Riverside and San Bernardino, then this definition doesn't mean anything. So let's further break it down. The IE is about 40 miles east of Los Angeles and 97 miles north of San Diego. The consensus online describes the region as about 27,000 square miles and home to more than 4.5 5 million citizens. To put that in perspective, the region is around 3,000 square miles bigger than West Virginia with two and a half times its population. And that still only makes up about 11% of California's total population. Those 4.5 million citizens live within Riverside and San Bernardino County and consist of mostly working class families who make a median income of around $70,000. Half of its total residents are Hispanic and about 22 of the IE's population has a bachelor's degree or higher. The IE's five biggest industries, according to the Inland Empire 2021 to 2024 Regional Workforce Development Plan are Healthcare with an emphasis in social assistance, retail, business services, educational services, and manufacturing. So far, so good. All of this information isn't something that residents would question. But the real controversy begins when discussing the cities that make up the IE. Nobody will debate whether or not cities right around the IE center, which consists of cities such as Riverside, San Bernardino, Redlands, and Moreno Valley, are a part of this region. The debate usually begins the further we veer from these central spots. Cities like Lake Elsinore or Temecula, despite being only around a 25 to 30 minute drive from downtown Riverside, can spark controversy among some. These debates even affected our newsroom. Confused faces, followed by many variations of the word no, was the reaction fellow journalists had when the possibility of considering the Palm Springs and Coachella Valley region as part of the IE was brought up. Yet, across the internet, Articles and blogs written by proud Inland Empire residents staunchly agreed that the desert region is IE. It's strange, but oddly satisfying, to see individuals fighting to be part of the Inland Empire despite its not-so-great reputation with the neighboring regions. Even so, people will proudly showcase IE tattoos, wear Inland Empire-inspired designs, or post about the region proudly on social media to let everybody else know they are indeed part of the culture. After much research on how to describe the region, we happened upon Southern California News Group reporter Nikki Johnson's article in the Press Enterprise titled, What Cities Make Up the IE? Her survey holds surprises, where she put it best. I'm in the IE, and the farther you are from me, the less likely you are in the IE. So that's the philosophy we carried when researching for this investigative piece. Our research consisted mainly within the cities of Riverside and San Bernardino, both of which already have a long history with the previous drug epidemic. The Inland Empire is no stranger to the harsh effects of addiction and drug use. The Los Angeles Times and the Press Enterprise have given the Inland Empire the title Meth Capital of the World, and the two counties held true to their reputations throughout the height of the countrywide meth epidemic. According to an article by the Press Enterprise named Meth's Legacy, Drug Labs, Contamination Remains, the two regions police departments busted 635 meth labs, or approximately 12 labs a week, in just the year 2000. 
It was an epidemic in the IE that held strong for about a decade and never really left, as Wendy Hetherington, chief epidemiologist for Riverside County, explained best. Methamphetamine has always been the number one drug uh, um, related to overdose deaths in our county, and that methamphetamine overdose deaths have increased consistently since 2009. And I started noticing in late 2020 that fentanyl and methamphetamine were getting mixed, and those polysubstance overdose deaths with meth and fentanyl um, have increased dramatically since 2020. So that's a combination of these two sort of increasing drug epidemics. In fact, just two years ago, on October 14, 2020, the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, held a press conference announcing the seizure of more than 5,200 pounds of meth in Paris and Moreno Valley, one of the biggest the agency had ever seen. This is an area with a long history of drug abuse, and the troubles are far from over as a new and deadlier drug crisis is entering the region. Which brings us back to the main point of this project, the rising fentanyl epidemic. I'm sure you have heard about it before, because this drug, like its predecessors, is making waves across mainstream media on what seems like a daily basis. It's a drug that's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, so potent that just 2 milligrams can be fatal to a human. Worst of all, most people don't even know that they're consuming it. But now the question is, how did it enter the Inland Empire? From Riverside City College Viewpoints, in partnership with the California Humanities through the Democracy and Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program, I'm Daniel Hernandez, and this is Fentanyl Empire. This is episode one, From Smugglers to Social Media. Right, so um, the fact that we have a fentanyl crisis is something that I think came to my realization, you know, slowly and over time. We had all heard years ago about the opioid crisis. The opioid crisis was different though. It was essentially overprescription of pain meds, primarily from doctors, but people were getting addicted. You know, they, they for example, get a back injury or, you know, car, car accident, then they would get opioids, uh, prescription opioids. Then we get addicted. The voice you are hearing is from Riverside County District Attorney Mike Hestron, and he's explaining the history of the drug epidemic from his perspective. Then we, we started seeing a lot of cases of, you know, uh, prescription fraud. And then what we started seeing was people going actually on the street and getting heroin. So heroin 20 years ago was a relatively rare hard drug. That all changed after the opioid crisis and the, the demand for heroin on the street all across the country, but Southern California is no exception. Riverside County is not immune to it. We, we saw it go way up. And so what, what, what happened then is the mass production of fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid. So basically synthetic heroin, it's about a hundred times more potent than heroin. And so because the demand went up for opioids during the opioid crisis, now all of a sudden the criminal organizations, the cartels, there was a big incentive for them to, to move opioids, heroin. And, and then we started getting the synthetic. The reason why we got the synthetic is in the grand scheme of things, I know maybe the public doesn't realize it, but the drug business is an illegal business, but it's still a business. And they think of things like overhead and, you know, they want to make more money. So if they can provide the drug to their customers for less, then obviously they make more money. It's just like any other business. Synthetic opioids are much, much cheaper than heroin or other, um, or, you know, or, or, uh, you know, stealing pharmaceuticals or anything like that. And so 
about five years ago, maybe a little bit more, we started seeing the prevalence of fentanyl. And fentanyl, the the, the thing with fentanyl, um, it's mass produced primarily in China, and it's it's being smuggled across primarily across the southern border. I'm sure that there are other entry points. I'm sure maybe sometimes it gets smuggled, you know, in an airplane or some other by boat. But primarily, the vast majority are coming in through the southern border, and, and beyond that, in terms of which cartels i I'm, i don't know i just know that we're getting a lot of fentanyl here in riverside county so the thing about it is it's incredibly toxic and lethal so to give you a sense of how lethal two milligrams of fentanyl is fatal to the human body um there are five thousand milligrams in a teaspoon so just a tiny little teaspoon of, of fentanyl contains many many doses fatal dose to the human body what we're finding on the street is kilos and kilos pounds of it um for example in November, there were 21 kilos of fentanyl recovered in the city of Riverside. So try to put that in perspective, 21 kilos compared to a teaspoon, compared to two milligrams, and you see the problem. It's, it's so toxic that um, it's killing people. Hestron has just been reelected for his third term in office and has worked within the district attorney's office for 25 years. He also just packed in a lot of information within that short clip. So let's break down what he just said and add a little bit more context. The opioid epidemic began in the 1990s after pharmaceutical companies like Purdue Pharma, which is owned by the Sackler family, successfully ran a campaign that told doctors their painkillers weren't addictive. This lie then led to an overprescription of opioid drugs such as Oxycontin. Then, as the rate of opioid addicts grew, so did demand, which led to an influx of prescription fraud. Pill mills, which was the nickname for locations that had doctors that handed out opioid prescriptions like candy, began to pop up throughout the country. Then, the second wave of the opioid epidemic hit around 2010, when addicts began to turn to heroin after a concerted effort led to a decrease of opioid prescriptions. People also began to seek heroin because of its low cost in comparison to opiate pills. 100 milligrams of heroin typically costs around $15 to $20, depending on factors like purity, compared to a single 80 milligram Oxycontin pill, which is worth between $60 and $100. As addicts turned to cheaper alternatives, heroin deaths nationwide increased about 286% throughout 2002 and 2013, according to a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report. The third wave of the opioid epidemic, which began in 2013, brings us back to fentanyl, which was marketed as a cheaper and stronger alternative to heroin and has slowly been taking over the drug market since. China, at first, was the main producer of the synthetic opioid. Due to its potency in small quantities, it was easy to mail to users and dealers who bought through black market websites like the Silk Road. This influx led to more than 37,000 fentanyl overdoses nationwide in 2019, according to a 2020 report from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. However, in May of 2019, China banned the production and sale of fentanyl after increased international pressure. This led to a big decrease in fentanyl being sold from China, but an increase in sales of precursor ingredients and tools to create fentanyl to Mexican cartels. So, now cartels are smuggling both fentanyl and fentanyl-laced drugs across the southern border, which is only about 115 miles from the Inland Empire, or about an hour and 45 minute drive assuming there isn't traffic. And it's a trend that Hestern and his team are no strangers to. At the same time that we're getting all this fentanyl in, the cartels have changed their strategy of how to distribute hard drugs. So in the past, when you talked about methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, they all came in in, in blocks. You've all seen, you know, the movies, you know, they're coming in in these blocks wrapped in cellophane and tape and, and fentanyl would, would show up like that as well. And it still does in many, in many instances. What changed though, is that the cartels and the drug organizations operating, operating in the United States and in our county started engaging in counterfeit pharmaceuticals at the same time made of fentanyl. So what they did is they went out and got pill making machines. So instead of just transporting blocks and then, you know, 
letting the local drug dealers cut it up and put it into packaging. When I started as a young DA, people were arrested for hard drugs and, and they always had little baggies. And that's how you knew that they were a drug dealer. They would have, you know, some container full of hundreds of little baggies already portioned out. What's, what's changed is they, they, they've gotten these pill making machines and they're counterfeiting pills like Percocet, Adderall. Uh, Valium, and they they make the pills the same color, and they they make them even with the stamping. I'll give you an example. So Percocet has an M30 on it, and they're the counterfeit pills are made to look exactly like you can't tell the difference. So if you have a real Percocet and a counterfeit, identical, you cannot tell with the naked eye. The problem is is that the counterfeit pill is has all, all contained fentanyl, and the DEA estimates that 40% of the pills on the street that are counterfeit contain a lethal dose. So that, I think, is what's driving the death rate for fentanyl. Like Hestron said, the DEA found that 42% of pills that were tested contained at least 2 milligrams of fentanyl. To make matters worse, the CDC found that fentanyl overdoses rose 56% nationwide between January 2020 to January 2021. It's an increase that Dr. Michael Levine, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Head of Toxicology Service at UCLA, has experienced firsthand. We're seeing patients that come in thinking they're taking fentanyl and they come in obtunded or they come in um, after taking simply too much fentanyl or more than they thought they were getting. We see patients uh, that think they're taking other drugs. So we've seen patients that thought they're taking marijuana that kind of, that's actually is largely fentanyl. Whether there's some marijuana in there or not is kind of irrelevant. The big picture or the bigger problem from them coming in was the fentanyl. Um, and we have lab confirmed evidence of that, that, they, that it's fentanyl. Uh, we've seen that with cocaine. We've seen it with marijuana. We've seen it with uh, other opiates where they think they're taking oxycodone, but it's really fentanyl pills. Uh, and we've certainly seen people come in and be dead from that. The drug's deadliness and its effect on unsuspecting users seems like common knowledge at this point. But now the question remains, how is it getting into the hands of Inland Empire residents? Similar to how cartels and dealers have found new ways to smuggle drugs, they have also taken advantage of the technology boom. What started with pagers and burner phones has evolved to using encrypted or disappearing messaging apps. From there, teens and young adults take these drugs and pass them around to their friends, according to Hestron, and are unknowingly putting themselves and others in danger. So, for example, we find... Um drug dealers advertising, say, selling cocaine. And by the way, drug dealers are on Snapchat and Instagram now. They're not typically on the corners. I'm sure you've heard that. So, <clears throat> you know, when, when we're finding folks selling hard drugs, dealing hard drugs, they are mixing. Fentanyl is almost invariably involved. But the pill thing, I think, is really, really damaging because so many people find themselves at a party, young people primarily, find themselves at a party their good friend gives them a pill. It's a Percocet. It'll, it'll relax you. It'll help you sleep. Take this. You'll feel good. You know, no big deal. And they look at it and it looks like a pharmaceutical. So it doesn't, you know, they don't think hard drugs. They don't think something from the street, but it contains fentanyl. And, that, and, they're, and they're being passed off something that they're not being told what it is. Hestron paints a good overall picture of how drugs may end up in the hands of young adults experimenting with drugs. But is this the same experience as someone who sought and used fentanyl? We asked two recovering fentanyl users about their journey through drug abuse in order to find out how someone can become addicted to a synthetic opioid. Their stories will be played throughout the entirety of this project, but for this episode, the main focus will be on how they first received the drug and how prevalent it is within the drug culture. Samuel Cuevas, or Sam for short, is a 24-year-old logistics coordinator and lives at a sober living facility in Riverside. He recalled how, before he changed his life for the better, he hung out with the wrong crowd during his last years of high school, which led him down a dark path. I, you know, got involved with some very bad influences and made some poor judgment calls and, you know, for my own betterment and just 
didn't really have the guidance that I needed to, um, you know, successfully do things the way I wanted to mm -hmm. or portrayed my life as. And what were some of those bad judgment calls? Um, you could say, you know, just hanging out with the wrong crowd, um, doing things that I shouldn't be, more or less, like going to places that I shouldn't have, trying things that I shouldn't have, um, along those lines. What you, what'd you start uh, trying out at first? Uh, at first, actually, it was just like your basic pills, you know? Um, it started off with like, you know, um, I guess you could say post-surgery narcotics. So like Valium, Oxycodone, and a little bit of Xanax here and there. Some more like the opiates? Opiates and, and benzodiazepines. So as you progressed, what ended up becoming your drug of choice? My main drug of choice was fentanyl by the end of it. And how, how did fentanyl, you know, at first, how did you get involved with fentanyl? It was actually, I had just, when I first got out of school, actually, I was, uh, you know, I went straight into work. I didn't even think about school because I was already in the mindset that, you know, school wasn't for me. So I decided, um, you know, to get right in the workforce and, and I did, and I met this individual and I had already been fond of opiates at the time. I wouldn't say so much dancing in love with it, but I would say that, you know, I, I had a good time on it. And, um, I was introduced to this one individual that, you know, kind of told me that this would be a little bit better for, you know, just a little bit more. And that's, it was just a done deal as soon as I started. So describe your first experience with fentanyl when you first touched it. Yeah, when I first got it, actually, I was, uh, I thought it was just regular oxy, you know, I, he didn't really necessarily tell me what it was and I didn't really care too much. Um, and once I tried it, it was the immediate euphoria and love that you look for your eternal life. You know, since you've been part of that experience of, you know, you suffered through fentanyl, uh, you've made your family suffer through fentanyl and now you're you know, getting sober, um, what would you say that is you know, the number one, you know, issue of, of fentanyl? Is it people dealing it? Do you think that it's a, a big crisis right now? I think it's, I think it's the availability of it. It's literally everywhere. I mean, you'll see it laced in cocaine, marijuana, you know, I don't mean to mention other drugs, but it's because it's in literally everything at this point. It's so cheap to produce. And I mean, it's, you could say it's in the air because you can go down the street and get it. You know, some drugs are more scarce than others, but fentanyl is not one of those. You know, you met some people along the road that also were using fentanyl. Um, you know, do you know what they used as well? Like, because you said there's pills, or did they inject it, or how did they use it? See, the thing is, too, is a lot of them didn't know they were doing fentanyl. I mean, it's pressed in Xanax bars, it's laced in other things, so they thought they were doing another drug, but little did they know they were hooked on fentanyl. So, yeah, most of them did fentanyl pills and powder as well from my encounters, but a lot of, I, I'd say a good 25% of them didn't know they were doing it. Cuevas grew up in San Diego and lived the majority of his life in a city named Oceanside and has only lived within the Inland Empire in the past couple of years. However, his story highlights exactly how many other drug users can end up using fentanyl. Our second interview, however, was with born and raised IE resident Michael Moya. He grew up in Fontana but moved between Hemet and Riverside throughout his life. He was raised by family members who were part of a gang in North Fontana and saw his father go through the prison system throughout his youth. Moya, who was two months clean at the time of this interview, also reminisced about his upbringing and how it led him to become a regular user of fentanyl. So Michael, can you just kind of run through to me, take your time, when was your first experience with like any sort of drug or alcohol? Any substance? Um, I was probably a toddler. Um, I would see like a 
family members like my uncle and stuff like that when I was younger um being in the backyard and like drinking beer and uh smoking and I would like mimic them I would go in the backyard and like whatever beer was left I would just start drinking it and kind of mimicking them like I had a cigarette in my hand or you know a joint or a blunt and uh, pretend like I was talking and then uh yeah they thought it was funny you know what I mean and um when I got a, a, like when I actually started consuming it like knowingly I was probably like a pre-adolescent maybe like right before teenage years like about 11 started like trying to drink uh like stealing alcohol out of you know the pantry or whatever and how were like your your folks responding to that um well it was like split on my dad's side they were kind of cool with it on my mom's side not so much um yeah my mom would have a cow you know like what the fuck are you doing and uh on my dad's side it was like don't tell your mom basically and we're gonna skip forward a little bit when was your like first experience first introduction to fentanyl like when you were like oh that's fentanyl um well i had heard about it of course i had probably taken fentanyl like unknowingly because i was taking a lot of uh press annex and i know that there's a lot of you know um they cut it with fentanyl to make it stronger and to like you know make it more addictive but i was doing heroin for years before i even started to do fentanyl probably maybe about six years i was doing heroin before i even like looked for fentanyl most of the time i just try to stay away from it but i was probably about 22 and 25 now so that was about three years ago and um i went straight to the the powder at first because it's kind of coming in different forms now the the m30 pills um it's percocet or it's fake percocet basically and then there's carfent which is just a straight fentanyl powder so I was kind of late to it in a sense, but um, yeah, I tried to just stick towards more heroin at first. And then it got to the point where I didn't really care what I got. And when you, when you first got it, how were you like consuming it? Like, how would you take it? The fentanyl? Yeah. Um, I would smoke it. Um, same thing with the heroin as well, mostly smoking it. Um, I'd inject fentanyl like here and there. Usually like when I had meth, then I would inject the fentanyl with it but um yeah usually smoking it and to to someone who's never had fentanyl is there any way to tell like um was there any way to tell like when you took heroin that like it had fentanyl in it um kind of yeah i mean there's a couple ways like you can't always be sure but most of the time they could you could taste it mm. um and other times um i hate to say it but um people die and then you're like oh okay well <laughs> Now I know that batch uh, has something else in it, basically, you know? So unless you have those uh, those uh, fentanyl test strips with heroin, you can't really can't really tell. It's kind of hit or miss. But in my experience, I've, I've tasted it a few times. Other times, I had no idea. Is fentanyl, is it easy? Is it hard to come by? Is it compared to something like more like weed? What would you say? Oh, yeah, it's definitely harder than, like, weed or alcohol or anything like that. Al alcohol, I mean, obviously, but even weed, you know, you could walk into a store and buy weed. Can't walk into a store and buy fentanyl, but I will tell you, living in certain areas like I have, like um, Los Angeles and different parts of the IE, if you walk around and ask the right person, you'll find it. 
for sure. <laughs> but I don't know how many people, um, you know, have been to that, the, you know, that deep in their addiction to where they're literally asking strangers on the street or looking for homeless people because, you know, they probably know where to get drugs. I mean, if you want something, you'll find it. Most people that were homeless people or the most people to find it or? No, but I mean, just being on the street, they're going to know somebody that like, you know, chances are if you're on the street, you're getting high because it sucks to be homeless or you're drinking or you know somebody who gets high who, you know what I mean? It's kind of just like where you start, like, because I, I mean, I've been homeless, so I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? How long were you homeless? Um, I've been homeless a couple different times. Nothing more than like, for like stretches of like two months, a month. I think the most, I was, I was like three months, but I was in my car. So I don't really count it. It's like, you know, like being classy homeless a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, you know, um, nothing more than like a month or two without, without a car. Luckily, both Cuevas and Moya have sought treatment and have not succumbed to this deadly drug. At the time of the interview, both were in a sober living facility and working to better themselves. However, it's their journey during their time using the synthetic opioid that reveals its true potency and potential to cause irreparable harm to the Inland Empire. Next episode, we talk to a retired police officer who lost a daughter to fentanyl and what he is doing to bring awareness to this new drug epidemic. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I, I was a police officer. You know, I retired after 30 years at the, with San Bernardino Police. And, and uh, yeah, I had a great life and great family and uh, everything went out good. Was this supposed to happen to me? No. But am I ashamed of it? No, I'm not ashamed of Jessica. She made a mistake. And, uh, you know, that mistake turned out to be, you know, one that cost her her life. But, you know, she's like many people in the world, you know, recreational use of that type of thing. We also delve deeper into Michael and Sam's stories. Yeah, I have. Um, I've overdosed maybe three times. Um, and then I've had people overdose on me twice. And the last time was I overdosed on the freeway and crashed into a wall and then got arrested right after. So I was pretty much at the point where I decided, you know, it's either going to be jail, death, or get myself together. There was no other options. That's next time on Fentanyl Empire, the Inland Empire's latest drug crisis. Fentanyl Empire is produced by Daniel Hernandez, Will L.G. Stevens, Jennifer Vasquez, and Tim Nacy. This episode was written and narrated by Daniel Hernandez and edited by Tim Nacy. If you or anyone you know is suffering from any kind of substance use disorder or mental health crisis, you can find some resources in the description and on our website, viewpointsonline.org.